We have another announced candidate for the U.S. Senate in Ohio, and the race is still almost two years away. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Ranowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. It feels like it should be the end of the week, but it's only Wednesday. <laughs> and it's going to be really cold this weekend, so you're going to be cooped up in your house again. I think it's going to end to like three on Sunday night or something like that. So we'll see. Let's begin. So Josh Mandel is running for the U.S. Senate, he announced this morning. Does that open up a can of worms for this guy with what's happened in his life in the past few years? Jen Cahoon, when he dropped out of the Senate race against Sherrod Brown, you know, at the last minute, he put the Republican Party into the lurch because they had no ready candidate. And then soon after that, he scurried off to a distant county to file divorce papers from his wife, trying to hide it from the public, which didn't work. I, I imagine now there's going to be quite a few efforts, including by us, to find out what might be in that divorce file, which he worked to seal. Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning, I have to say, you said another candidate. He's really the first one. Everybody else has been teasing about it. But I think he's the first person to actually say he's running. But, wow, that is interesting. Yeah. But particularly, you know, since Jane Timken stepped down as chairman of the Ohio Republican Party, I mean, it's pretty obvious she's got a strong interest in running. You don't just like leave that position for nothing. So that would say to me, you know, the party perhaps isn't very fond of Josh Mandel for, for what he did the last time when he dropped out. And as you said, left them in the lurch. But he is really promoting himself as the Trump candidate, which is also interesting because Jane Timken is a staunch Trump ally. But Mandel's tweet announcing his candidacy said, He's been watching the impeachment proceedings and it's making his blood boil. And he is wants to go to Washington and fight for President Trump's America first agenda. So he's like right out of the gate, you know, cozying up to Trump. You know, he had a great chance to to become a senator when he ran against Sherrod Brown, whatever it was, eight years ago. But as we proved, almost every statement he issued in that campaign, he lied. I mean, we were doing PolitiFacts then, and they were all pants on fire. And I think that's what really turned people against him. He's just making stuff up. But, but the world is very different with Josh Mandel today from then. Back then, he was holding himself out as this strong family man, former military guy. He was married to somebody in the, in the very influential Ratner family. But when he dropped out of the Senate race a couple of years ago, summarily with no explanation we heard he was dropping out to take care of a family member who you presume to be his wife and then he divorces her in some distant county and seals it so that whole family man thing is out the window there must be something pretty damning in that divorce file when he worked to seal it and there is as you pointed out before the podcast jane precedent in ohio where we can get that unsealed which we will do or we will attempt to do. I think whatever the cause of that is probably won't be good news for him. Chris Wernowski, you mentioned that Barack Obama was elected senator when his opponent had a divorce file come out with lots of details that showed him to be an icky, icky person. So, so this is an odd one to me. I mean, Jane Timken seems like the ideal candidate, especially if Amy Acton is in the, on the ballot on the Democratic side. What is Josh Mandel's path? I, his money raising. He's got up. money. He's still sitting on, I think it's something like four million bucks in a federal account that he kept going. 
after he dropped out of the Senate race. So he is sitting on a pile of cash. Um, well, he'll need it to spin the news as reporters start looking into what he's been up to these last few years mm-hmm. and why he really dropped out last time. Chris Warnowski. You say that the that losing the Ratner name will limit his ability to fundraise, but it's not like the Mandel name is, is anything, you know, that's no slouch of a last name either. You know, I mean, that's a pretty influential family as well, right? Yeah, I just, it, it seems like his, he had a real shot at this once when he was kind of this gleaming young politician and now he's all tarnished. Jane, you had talked about when he ran for state office, he, he, he used some kind of sleazy tactics, uh, anti-Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. I believe because there was a scandal in, in Kevin Boyce's treasurer's office and involving, you know, someone who worked for him and, you know, Josh Mandel put out these kind of scary looking ads. I think he ended up apologizing for that, but he beat Boyce. I think he's going to have a hard time if Timken runs beating her because she has none of this, this damage in her background. And she has been very loyal to Donald Trump. I mean, well, this is, I mean, this really sort of sets the tone though. I mean, we are really, we're really moving beyond the bland politician that Rob Portman is, you know, I mean, this is, this is really, I mean, you look at, I mean, go look at the Twitter accounts of both of these people who are running and it's just like, ooh, you know, they're, they, they really, they really have a, a tone, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure all of them would be in there voting as Rob Portman did yesterday to block the impeachment trial. Yes. You know, the guy yes. who said he wanted to hear all the evidence. Yeah. The courageous Rob Portman. <laughs> the other thing is, is I, and we've talked about this before, if Amy Acton is the Democratic candidate, that Josh Mandel style of attack dog politics, I think, will fail. I, I don't think the way to beat Amy Acton is to be the, the bloodthirsty bully saying things like your blood is boiling and things like that. So we'll have to see. I don't know, though. Like, this is Laura Johnston. Do you feel like. With him obviously siding for Trump and he grabs everybody who was really anti-mask and really anti-DeWine with his restrictions? No, because I think I think Timken gets a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, she looks and, and she comes across as sane and she's not going to have ugly stuff in her background. Plus, I think she could say, I have a better chance of beating Dr. Amy Acton than than Josh. Mandel. Although keep in mind, she has walked the line. She's a staunch Trump ally, as I said but she's also a DeWine, a Mike DeWine ally. And there's a lot of anti-Mike DeWine sentiment there among the Trump crowd. So it, it'll just be interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Say it isn't so. Why is the guy who brought down former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder, the guy overseeing the investigation of the biggest corruption case in state history, being asked to resign? Chris Ranowski, this is distressing because because he's done a great job up to now. Well, it's distressing, but also not totally unexpected. U.S. Attorney Dave DeVillers is going to leave the office of U.S. Attorney down in the he, Southern District, the Southern District Columbus, of Ohio. Right? Yeah, so he he will be stepping down. But Biden is asking basically all Trump appointed U.S. attorneys to step down, just as Trump did back in 2017 when he asked all of. Obama's folks to to submit their resignations. This is a pretty common thing to happen when there's a turnover in administration. But it does, it looks weird because, I mean, this office is really at the forefront of this big investigation into First Energy and Larry Householder and basically all of our state politicians <laughs> at this point. But he, he 
talked to us this week and and he basically said we we believe that that the investigation is in a good place and it will continue without us i would love to hear that from the people asking him to resign <laughs> i would love to hear that yes he's going but make no mistake people of ohio we will root out every corrupt elected official who stuck it to you by trying to give your money to first energy because dave devillers did a heroic act i mean the, the legislature still has not repealed that corrupt bill. The only public official that is trying to fix this, well, there's two, is DeVillers. And Dave Yost has done a lot of work, too. No, Nobody else is doing it. And so I, I do worry that it, leadership you know, is making big decisions. He made the big decision to, to do this case. And it is staggering what we've learned already. And we keep hearing bigger things are coming. That, this, that the whole statehouse was bought and paid for. I mean, they they passed a bill to give billions to utilities that they didn't have coming, all coming out of our pockets. So I'm I you know, I I hear you that yeah, the investigation will continue, but but he was the leader of it. He's the guy that that said go. Uh, well, I hope the next guy does the same thing. I hope a lesson that people kind of took away from the federal judiciary during the Trump administration is that there are kind of safeguards to getting cases tossed out. You know, there were there were things that Donald Trump tried to get even staunch allies like Bill Barr to do that that really he were impossible that he, that never happened. I mean, DeVillers said very much like that he has a great deal of confidence that these cases are going to be fine and and that the indictments have been handed down and I think he's going to be there for a little bit too and and he's also offered his help if if he <laughs> but I don't think he's going to come back. But I think I think what we saw is that there is some judicial independence there. I mean, I have confidence that this will continue. I, I it, it's weird, but I, I I don't have any of the anxiety about this that you seem to have, Chris. <laughs> yes, I do because I, I you can get a bozo in there that would move people around and drop the ball. We have seen the Justice Department do inexplicable stuff in the past. We've seen U.S. attorneys do things that make no sense. There will be pressure on whoever is next to stop it because influential people are being taken down. And, and there are other influential people who have not been named publicly in this thing that I think are targets of it that don't want to go to prison. So so this is a high pressure job. And DeVillers proved he had the medal to carry it forth. Not all of his colleagues across the country have that medal. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the battle heating up on whether people have to pay income taxes to cities where their officers are, even though they have worked from home for almost a year? Jen Kuhn, we talked about this a good bit at the beginning of the pandemic because it's completely unfair that you have to pay taxes to a city you don't step foot in. I mean, I just don't see how there's constitutional <laughs> backing for that. And it seems like some people agree with me. We have more fronts on this battle. We do, but it's still probably going to take a long time to sort it out. Uh, we had two more lawsuits filed Tuesday by the Buckeye Institute. They're a, a conservative think tank that, that's been pushing this issue. They had filed one previous suit. These two suits were against the cities of Columbus and Cincinnati and Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost on behalf of suburbanites who are working remotely. One is an Ohio Department of Health employee from suburban Columbus, and the other is a Blue Ash resident, that's a suburban Cincinnati, who is in the financial field. As I said, they, they take on a little bit of a different twist because in both cases, these people 
worked remotely before the pandemic. And in the past, they had received refunds on taxes collected by those cities, Columbus and Cincinnati, for the work that they performed outside those cities. But now, of course, they can't get their refunds because of this law that the legislature approved last March at the beginning of the pandemic. It was a wide-ranging coronavirus legislation that, that said, you know, during this emergency declaration until 30 days after it ends, that any day in which an employee performs personal services at a location, including the employee's home, you know, they're going to treat it as the employer's principal place of work, you know, not where they're actually working. Yeah. But people like us, as we know, have been working continuously since March from home. So this is fascinating because when they work from home for part of the year, they could get a refund. But when they're working home for the entire year, they don't get any of their money back. I just don't see how this stands. This, you know, we work, our parent company for Advance Ohio is based in New York, New Jersey. This would be like New York, New Jersey saying you have to pay us income taxes. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And yet the legislature and the governor have created this gigantic issue of unfairness that I'm positive the courts are going to say can't stand. And much to Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's chagrin, it's going to have to be retroactive. You can't. Yeah, the the cities are going to take a a big hit to their budgets as a result of this. But, you know, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, of course. But is there something in the law that where they could argue that because of this emergency situation that it has to be this way or some kind of waiver from, you know, what's right and fair? I just don't see it. I mean, you're basically forcing people to pay Cleveland money when they have nothing to do with Cleveland or Columbus. I, I. I I can't imagine any court, liberal or conservative, would say this is fair. And and, you know, the lawsuits make it pretty clear. You know, we'll have to see how it goes. I'm I'm, even Mike DeWine, when he was asked about this, when it became an issue last year, was like, yeah, I'm not I'm not saying that I did this to so the companies would not have a paperwork nightmare of trying to figure out where to pay the taxes. But, yeah, this needs to be worked out. And don't we have a bill that was introduced last session? by the Hudson legislator to end it? Is that bad? Have they reintroduced yeah, that? Yeah, I don't think that got reintroduced yet. I I could be wrong because they, inter- you know, a whole dozens of bills were introduced last week that were uh, retreads from the last session. So I'll, I'll have to catch up with that and find out. I just can't imagine this is going to stand. But I, And I don't get why it's taken so long. It's pretty simple. Why isn't this moving? It's going to be a lot of money. Right, and like uh, agencies like the RITA, regional income tax agencies, they're saying, yeah, you know, fill out this refund form, but but we're going to hold on to it until this litigation is over. So as I said, this isn't going to be resolved soon. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Ohio finally about to embrace mass vaccination centers for the coronavirus instead of the scattershot approach that has confused and infuriated a boatload of senior citizens? Jen Kuhn, I can tell you they're infuriated. They keep sending me notes. They're really angry <laughs> with Mike DeWine's plan. I, I saw that across the country, people are very upset with the way this has been rolled out, but they hate this. They're confused. They can't find places. And then they see the teachers have a central place and they're saying, why can't we? Are we close to getting a central place? Well, in fact, Governor DeWine said at his briefing on Tuesday that mass vaccination centers were always part of the plan 
if the state got enough vaccine supply to make them happen. <laughs> he wow. said, uh, oh my God. That sounds like revisionist history, man. Well, he, he did say back on January 21st that Ohio had identified 100 potential sites. And, and right after he said that, we were like, oh, let's get the list. And so we asked for it and they, they never gave it to us. And so we inquired again this week and we're told that it was still being finalized by the state's emergency management folks. But why would you keep this secret? I mean, there's only certain places you can do it. So it's a convention center. said they're still sport. finalizing it. So I, I don't know. It's, you know. It, it's funny. We, we asked DeWine about this issue after this virtual event that President Biden held on, on Monday. He, he toured a mass vaccination site at the Arizona Cardinals Stadium. And at that event, Jeff uh, Zients, his, uh, Biden's coronavirus response coordinator, said, we're building these new vaccination centers from the ground up in stadiums and community centers, parking lots and mobile units in states ranging from California to Ohio to New York. So that really caught our attention. But we tried to get more information from the feds and from Ohio, and we really couldn't get any details about what might be in store here. Uh, DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney, Tierney told us that uh, multiple agencies in the administration are working together to develop these sites for when Ohio is ready, but the, the state currently doesn't have enough vaccine supply to do it. We also tried the Browns and the Bengals since the NFL has supposedly offered Biden the use of all the football stadiums for this endeavor, but they, they didn't get back to us. So, And DeWine didn't answer the question when, when Laura Hancock asked him on Tuesday whether his administration had talked about it with, with the Browns and Bengals. But Sabrina Eaton did do a story describing how this center in Arizona works, which was, which was interesting. So I wonder if DeWine is working with local officials on this or if they're just picking them themselves. You would think that county health departments might have the best view, or not just county, city, all the health departments would have the best view on where to do this, I, you would hope that there's some communication going on there. Yeah, like the convention center or the fairgrounds or whatever. I don't know. It might be. I guess it's a lot harder in rural areas. But, you know, there's a lot of closed Walmarts they could probably use, right? So, yeah, And there's a fairgrounds in every county. Right? <laughs> yeah, but that's outside. I mean, it's going to be three degrees. Yeah, someday. and it's not going to work like Arizona where they can do They're doing that in tents. And that, that by the way, is a 24-7 operation they are vaccinating tons of people at this this center in arizona like 350 to 400 vaccines per hour how do they have all the vaccine it's it's just to to laura's point about people staying in their cars it's it's worth pointing out that it is difficult to do this with cars because you do have to wait 15 minutes so it would create a weird log jam of people And, and so it's it's by all accounts, kind of impractical to give these while people are in their cars. Yeah, and all it, that idling and the fumes. And yeah. The, yeah, that just look, seems like a bad... We got a model for it. They're doing 23,000 teachers in two weeks in Cuyahoga County in one location. They've got them socially distanced. They're going to watch them to make sure they're okay. And there's a way forward on this. We just need the big interior space and the will to do it. And I guess the vaccine. Maybe Arizona just has more clout than Ohio does in in getting the vaccine. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cuyahoga County planning to pay its former chief information officer $245,000 for not working? Laura Johnston, 
<laughs> I wish somebody would pay me $245,000 for not working. I think lots of people would say, hey, I'd like that deal. What What is going on with Cuyahoga County? Right. I feel like you ask that question every every podcast, but this is a rare 7-4 split vote in a county that has usually fairly uh, unanimous votes. So council approved the settlement for former information technology chief Scott Rourke. He had filed a lawsuit accusing the county of unlawfully keeping him on unpaid leave for 19 months during this criminal investigation. Um, Vice President Cheryl Stevens voted against the settlement along with the Republicans. And she said, I find this whole thing wrong for our constituents. We're paying someone who did nothing for two years. But other people said this is the best option because the county could be forced to pay more money if the lawsuit moved forward. So what happened is back in 2018, Armin Budish's administration placed Rourke on unpaid leave when he was named in subpoenas in a criminal probe related to the county's business with one community. It's a nonprofit where Rourke once served as president and CEO. Work was never charged, but he was kept on unpaid leave until October 2019. Council demanded answers about the long absence. He was fired days later. So now in this lawsuit, he wants all the wages he would have been paid. And he earned $216,000 a year. What makes this even more interesting is that council asked Budish to address this unpaid leave in a letter. And it, the letter really was kind of lacking, according to the council. He said, while in hindsight, I must have been mistaken. I did not want to further harm Mr. Rourke's reputation since we had no knowledge of wrongdoing. So, but yeah. They didn't, they, of, but once again, the Buddhist administration didn't follow the law. I mean, Rourke has a good claim. I mean, the law says you can't do this. And, right. And your choices are X. And Buddhist did not follow the law. How many times have they gone outside the charter, gone outside the law, and it costs the taxpayers? I'd salute Charles Stevens for for standing up. I keep hearing she's someone to watch. I wonder if she's going to run for county executive in the future. It's nice to see somebody on that council, especially on the Democratic side, running against the party line to say, wait a minute, this isn't right. And and trying to hold Budish accountable for more of the incompetence that repeatedly comes out of that office. Okay. I still want $245,000 for not working. <laughs> um, can I get that? <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. Do we have another version of how the police shooting of Desmond Franklin went down, one that differs from the account offered by the officer who killed Franklin? Chris Ranaski, this one's been a long time coming, but it does open a window on what might have happened that day. Right. Uh, to give some background, Desmond Franklin was shot and killed by a off-duty Cleveland police officer back in April 9th of last year. And the version of this that we we got uh, is is from the other uh, young person that was in the car with Franklin uh, when the shooting took place. And, you know, during the events that sort of led up to it, the boy who witnessed the shooting by the officer said in his statement that he and Franklin never chased after the officer, which was part of the police officer's original account, Officer Jose Garcia. And and this is I mean, this is going to be a really tough case, I think, for the for prosecutor for the grand jury to decide, because there there are two very contradicting stories about what happened here. I mean, the two witnesses are the officer and this this teenager who survived. And there's really not any video. There's nothing that that explains what happened. But basically this Adam Adam managed to get his hands on this copy of, of this 17 year old boy's statement that was contained in an OPS investigation into 
a civilian complaint against this police officer. And none of this has sort of come out through any official police report or anything. We just happened to realize that this complaint had been filed and, and that we had access to it. So let's let's give it the sniff test. Mm-hmm. So, so the officer's account is he sees these guys steal a couple of cases of soda, pulls up, talks to them. They have some words and then they chase him and it leads to the shooting. The, the right. other the other one is <laughs> they took the cases of soda. The guy pulls up and the, the cop does the bad stuff. I mean, my, my question is, if I just stolen two cases of soda. And a guy pulls up and says, I'm a police officer and, and goes away. The last thing I'm going to do is go chase him down because I've stolen a case of soda. I have a gun in the car. I'm going to get caught. So, mm-hmm. so that doesn't make sense. So either the guy pulled up next to him, didn't identify himself as a cop, which doesn't make any sense either. Why wouldn't he have said, I'm a cop and, and then drives away and they chase him? I mean, the sniff test kind of puts the meter on the side of the new statement. It's a little harder to believe what the police officer is saying happened. Right. But again, it's, it's one person's word against another person's word. And so I know, but you know, and and, you know, I I think history sort of leans in in favor of police officers. I mean, not, not to say that that's right. I'm just saying, you know, that's kind of how these things tend to shake down, uh, you know, in, in the past that, you know, that's prosecutors and, and, and grand juries tend to side with police officers in these cases. And, you know, that's that's unfortunate in some cases, but th- this is a tough one. I, I I don't know how this is going to come down, but I this was this was a fascinating I, I urge everybody to go read Adam's story that came out. It is a fascinating. It's, it's, it's a really interesting. I, I mean, we don't have enough time to go through everything on here. So it's 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 worth reading. But it, it's, right. it's such a sad, tragic story one way or the other all right this week in the cle how does ohio governor mike dewine respond to recent revelations of big plunges in kindergarten readiness and third grade language arts scores jane cahoon he 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 wants bold ideas but they're not going to come from his administration (laughs) he wants the public school district to come up with a plan to address this learning loss by april 1st as you said a week ago we got this grim news and a report from the ohio department of education that showed losses for fall 2020 during the pandemic and in both kindergarten readiness and third grade English language arts scores. Those are two landmark state assessments that they use to guide a student's future. So that it was just really, really sad what, what kids have gone through here. You know, DeWine was urging calm and he even brought the state superintendent, Paolo Di Maria, to Tuesday's briefing to talk about this and he said most districts anticipated these drops and they're working to address them. And he, he said he wants a plan and he wants it to be bold so that the state and the legislature can can work on making changes to support schools. And I'm sure the legislature is going to hop right on that. Right. But well, the, the thing that's weird is, did we really need these recent revelations to tell us that kids education has suffered mightily by not being in school for the past year? And I, it's almost like you know, last summer, when they realized schools would probably be closed for most of this year, that you might have started making a plan then to proactively deal with it in real time 
rather than waiting for the ceiling to yeah. fall in. I mean, they've done right. things like waive some of the requirements and so forth. And yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I'm not. not gonna, we don't want to measure. We don't want to know how bad it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Laura Johnston can tell us, right? But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, Dewine's budget does include more money for these wraparound services to help kids too. And he said there's two billion in additional federal funding you know, that was approved in, in December, some coronavirus funding. And, you know, as Look, we know. He clearly has- cares, right? Because the, the whole reason he's vaccinating teachers is to get kids back in schools. I don't think you can question at all Mike DeWine's motives in trying to help the kids. It's a little odd that he's going to the districts for the plan. I guess he's thinking the local people would know better. But, mm-hmm. but it, this is going to be a universal problem that's going to require big money. And, and mm-hmm. so... You know, maybe you it ought to be done in concert. But, but look, at least he's on top of it. I he, he Mike DeWine does clearly care about children. It's been part of his mantra since he took office, um, and this is more evidence of that. It's this week in the CLE. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.